Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 11 of the Sin Essential Podcast. My name is John Gilpatrick, and joining me is Aaron Pinkston. Aaron, how are you? I am so happy we're talking about on today. I could just, like, whistle, you know. Oh, could you? Just whistle a nice little tune and, you know, just be happy. We might think bad things about you if you do that, though. No, there's no whistling on this podcast. Uh, also on the line, I don't know why anyone who's ever seen this movie would ever whistle again. Um, but that's that's another thing we can get into. I whistle all the time in real life, just for the record. And so, uh, watching this for the first time in a while and remembering how key whistling is to the conviction of one of the main characters is a, a nice reminder that that's a really obnoxious and terrible habit. But uh, I digress. <laughs> yeah, Sarah- well, actually, if you've ever listened to Ricky Gervais's old podcast, uh, according to Carl Pilkington, whistling is art. So there you go. (laughs) Except if a baby does it, then it's scary or something. So Peter Laurie is an artist is what you're trying to tell me. Yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. This is Sarah Gore. Sarah, how are you? I've been better because I just really want everyone to know that I grabbed an extremely hot bowl with my full palm. So I'm holding an ice cube right now because I just burned the shit out of myself. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you for hitting the mute button before you did that. You're welcome. I'm sorry it happened. And, uh, I just want everyone need... to know that I'm, I showed up anyway. You can see up, right? Are, are you going to get a scar in the shape of an M? Oh. Um, right like now, it kind of looks like a frowny face. Is it like well, the, uh, the, uh, very, the very amazing poster for this movie? Yeah, it's something. Um, so, uh, all right. So, yes, obviously, uh, if you couldn't have guessed by now, we're here to talk about Fritz Lang's M. It's our essential film of the week. And um, we're going to talk about uh, lots of spoilers. If you haven't seen it, uh, definitely recommend you go check it out. And uh, I think it's probably streaming online somewhere. Aaron, is that right? It's on uh, Yeah, you can rent or, sorry, it. Sorry, uh, Amazon. Amazon. Yeah, you can rent it. And then it's, it's on Filmstruck if you're, uh, since it's part of the Criterion Collection, if you're... Uh, if you are a subscriber to Filmstruck, then uh, you can see it there, too. Cool. Um, so, Aaron, do you want to tell us uh, first just a little uh, – reintroduce everyone to the film and mm-hmm. then tell us about sort of why you chose it and your relationship to it? Yeah, so this is one of my favorite movies ever um, ever made. Uh, I've, I think it – I first saw it at a time when uh, I was a, a new – uh, a new film student. So it was one of the first times in my life where I was really excited about dissecting the art of film. And for the first time seeing a lot of old movies that, you know, I didn't, I didn't really have any interest in when I was in high school or younger. Uh, so it was one of the, I mean, it was one of the first movies that I really gravitated gravitated towards while I was I was sort of in that mode. I, I remember it was the very first Criterion movie I ever bought, huh. um, which uh, is a special thing in, 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 in my heart. Uh, now, I, I mean, I have a whole Ikea shelf full of them. So yeah, let's not talk about uh, that. <laughs> yeah. Most of them are unopened, too. I'm, I'm a little weird. Uh, but I do have a... To, to do a sidebar here, I, I do have a third man unopened Criterion out of print, wow. which go for like three hundred bucks now. So uh, I'm waiting to sell that at the right time, or open it and whatever. Actually, enjoy a piece of thing that is you know supposed to be watched. 
anyway, so M, uh, yeah, uh, I, like I said, I, re- I really love this movie. It's a, it's a film that I return to quite often, um, even though with I mean that's weird, right? Because it's it's kind of a pretty deplorable, depressing movie. <laughs> yeah, but. Uh, I mean, I, I, I just, I really love the craft of it. Um, you can see in, in my opening statement that uh, one of the things that I think is really great and I think is exemplary, particularly for M, is you can really embrace this movie on an artistic and a narrative, uh, in, in artistic and narrative ways. It's just a masterwork of, of sound and image. We'll definitely, I know, we'll get into that a lot. But it's also like, if you just like crazy, like serial killer movies, like it's that too, you know? Um, so it, it, it's kind of both, it kind of has like a, both of a sort of a highbrow and a lowbrow, uh, element working together. Um, and you know, I grew up watching horror, horror films. So finally seeing M and seeing Peter Laurie as just like one of the most despicable characters ever in, the history of cinema it was just like man this is great <laughs> um so uh so yeah uh, i'm really excited to talk about it i think there's a lot we can talk about so uh hopefully uh hopefully we do the film justice can you give us like a really quick like 20 second yeah. plot synopsis just to kick things off sure so uh film stars peter Lorre, who you might know from side being side characters in movies like maltese falcon and casablanca uh, he, a, he Which sure, one? yeah, Bugs Bunny cartoons. Okay, <laughs> that's where I knew him from. All right. <laughs> so uh, he plays Hans Becker, who is uh, a murderer of children. Um, there's no real mystery to the movie. Uh, I mean, it is sort of an investigation film, but there's no one. There's, I mean, there's there's zero doubt that you know pretty much right from the beginning of the, the movie that uh, this guy is, is the the man who's who's been hunting children in, in the Berlin inner city and uh, and, and killing them. Um, I, I, it stays away from, and obviously, you know, being a film from early 1930s, it, it stays away from any implication that he might be, you know, a, a child predator in other ways. But uh, isn't it bad enough just to kill kids? I think so. Yeah. I guess. So... Um, most of the movie is, uh, like I said, an investigation, two kind of parallel investigations. One from the police uh, in Berlin, very authoritative, uh, pre-Nazi. There's a lot of uh, sort of under underlying uh, themes going on, um, uh, you know, a sort of prelude to the Nazi era in Germany. So you have these authoritarian, authoritarian police uh, and then you also have the uh, organized crime also on the lookout for this guy uh, partially because they are pretty much just sick and tired <laughs> of being all of the people who are brought in when any crimes like this happen mm-hmm. uh, and they know that they're not as despicable as what's being uh, being done here so they themselves go on their own investigation uh, and it, it sort of wraps up where Hans Becker is caught um, in, a, in a particularly interesting uh, sequence, which I know we'll talk about, uh, and is basically put on a, a trial in a kangaroo court um, by the organized crime uh, syndicate uh, who 
you know, they, they bring up the facade of, of letting him have his defense, you know, pretty much just to laugh at him before they kill him. And, and then it, uh, it ends uh, quickly after, uh, after that trial, quote unquote trial happens. Um, so yeah, that, that's pretty much the, the run through of the plot. Sarah, can you tell us a little bit about your relationship to the film? Um, I'd never seen it before, uh, so this was my first First watch. time? Woo! Mm-hmm. Yeah. Have you seen any of Fritz yeah. Lang's movies before this? Um, I saw Metropolis at uh, in the theater when they brought it back for, oh. I think it was just at the music box or something, so I saw it on the big screen, and that was super cool. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I, I didn't really know what to expect, so I was like, Metropolis is sort of, feels sort of like its own thing and i didn't know how similar this would feel to that and it turns out not similar at all (laughs) (laughs) just uh good in its own in it very much in its own way um yeah i mean i think i liked it i don't know if i want to say more than i expected it expected to i just know that uh i'm somebody like probably most people that i don't always have an easy time with silent film depends on what it is depends on who's in it but I or under, sorry, I was talking about silent film. Like this is one. It's not. But um, I think that it. But sorry, it like feels, older, like early nineteen yeah. thirties. Uh, there are long, long stretches of almost complete silence in the movie. So sometimes yeah. it kind of feels like one. Yeah, it definitely does. Um, but yeah, I'm rambling a little bit. But I like I enjoyed it on a on a really like like kind of like Aaron was saying. Like it's just like a, oh my god, are they gonna get him? Like what's gonna happen? <laughs> not just like oh that's this you know amazing art piece, which it was that as well. But I was really just kind of sucked into the plot at various points. So yeah. um, I think it's more accessible than maybe people get the credit for. I think that that's true. Um, to, uh, Fritz Lang said it was one of his. I think he said it's his favorite movie of his that he made. Um, and he appreciates sort of the way that he turns the characters' motives and and feelings and things on its head in the in the last few scenes, um, which is mm-hmm. interesting. And I'm sure we'll talk about that. But for me, this was the second time I've seen M. I watched it probably you know when I was really getting into movies. And Fritz Lang is a director who I love. He's on my Mount Rushmore. And I've seen this now twice. This is the second time I watched it. And it was interesting to watch it because it's like not, it wasn't the movie that I remembered. Um, I don't know. Like, I think that in my head, um, like the scene that I remember the most is the trial, which uh, I think is probably the case for a lot of people. And certainly we'll get there. But um, I like envision the movie as more of that than it is. And, and really yeah. everything that comes up before that is pretty standard, like procedural stuff and is really interesting and exciting. Like Sarah was saying, but um, it's been done like a billion times since, uh, which isn't to like discount, like how influential and important a film it is. It's just, you know, you can watch a Michael Mann movie and see traces of M or uh, silence of the lambs and think a lot about M and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, so it was, it was interesting rewatching it and remembering like, Oh yeah, this is like a, just a cop criminal and the extra element of other criminals uh, <laughs> pursuing yeah. one another like cat and mouse. And uh, I don't know that like I thought less of it because it wasn't what I remembered, but it was just kind of fun to, remember and revisit uh, a movie that i have you know strong feelings for so um yeah it's it it really sits in an interesting place in time and cinema obviously this is just a few years after uh synchronized sound had been introduced um to films so it's like sarah was saying i mean it's a full sound film but 
there are long stretches where there's like an obviously there's no audio track at all. You know, it, it, there aren't a lot of there. There are other times where there's not a lot of dialogue. All, but also sort of part of of what you were saying, John. It, it's I mean, it's definitely. Uh, I don't know how true this is, but I, I I think it's one of the one of the first films that really get into a, a full investigation of uh, a killer. Uh, it also kind of sits really interestingly between. Fritz Lang's two uh, biggest trends, uh, his German Expressionism period in the silent era with things like Metropolis, um, most notably. Um, And then as one of, you know, really his kind of, not exactly his first, but leaning into his American period where he was primarily doing film noir. Uh, it kind of has elements of of both of those uh, of both of those uh, genres and, and film techniques uh, within the film. So yeah, I think it it's thinking of accessibility. I think it does a lot of different things really well, and that kind of creates uh, a little something for for most people who would be willing to give it a chance. Yeah, sure. So you talked about the sound, and I'm really glad this came up because. Um, I mean, I knew that it came out just a few years after the jazz singer, um, which was the first, you know, movie with, with dialogue sound. And, um, but it's interesting the, like to contextualize it from this time period, because it, it does feel like they're still just kind of figuring it out. And I don't know, was this, do you know if this was Fritz Lang's first sound movie? Uh, I believe it was, I'll I'll pull up, let me pull up his filmography, but I'm both. I'm almost certain. I'm almost certain it was um, the Jazz Singer was 1927. So it's it's four years before this, which seems like a long time, especially when innovations happening. But um, you also kind of have to remember that the Jazz Singer really there was only a couple of scenes in that movie that used synchronized sound. Right. Have right. you guys either of you seen Jazz Singer? No, no, no it's I never. Entirety. It's it's terrible. I yeah. mean, it's just a really <laughs> bad movie. Obviously, it has a bad reputation because of the blackface stuff. But oh yeah, well, uh, <laughs> but it's just. I mean, the 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 scene where Jolson sings is. I I'm, I totally understand why audience would have gone crazy for that. Uh, and I mean, it's Al Jolson singing. I mean, that's that's you can't dispute that. That's that's you know historically relevant and great um but other than that like it's a pretty boring like not very well directed movie um and then you know throughout the the next couple of years as more films were uh bringing synchronized sound on you know into um you know into their films it it was it was something that was really hard to do because it was hard to move cameras back then um and so when you also had to record the sound, uh, it, it, it just made things even tougher, um, which is part of the reason why in some of the scenes in M that are a little bit more action heavy is when you have a little less, there's a little less uh, sound um, that's obviously recorded. Uh, and also part of the reason why, you know, I think in my mind, this is probably the first masterpiece of the sound uh sound era because it not only because of fritz lang's use of sound and and how many tricks he kind of pulls throughout the film some of them are subtle some of them are quite obvious um but also because it i mean it's a it's a really full 
well shot movie where sound cinema wasn't a lot of it wasn't quite there yet. Yeah. Um, from just the top of my head, um, I, go ahead. Can I jump in and just say that I'm really glad that you said that because so I'm just like not that well versed in you know early sound era film. So I was straight up like. I don't know if this is supposed to be this way. I think because I was remembering, like, maybe it was even A Star is Born, where it's just, like, that weird section, if you watch in the middle, that's just, like, photos and sound over it. And it's like, oh, well, we lost part of the movie. It doesn't exist. Yeah. Or, like, older movies where it's like, yeah, this isn't really supposed to be like this. We're just guessing at what it was because we don't know. Well, so I was like, I don't know if there's supposed to be sound here or not. <laughs> or if somebody right, just yeah. like I mean, dropped a coffee cup off their desk by accident. <laughs> yeah, so I was, no, I, that's just really interesting. So like I said, you know, I don't know a ton about that era of uh, of film, so I was just like, mm-hmm. yeah. Anyway, I, I mean, I can't, I can't speak authoritatively on you know the the production of uh, all the elements of the production of the film, but just sort of as I've seen a lot of, watched a lot of films from, from the period and just, you know, know some basic things about how synchronized sound was coming into cinema. That, that would be my best guess. Uh, I, I just, so I just pulled it up and, and playing actually made two films between Metropolis and M uh, spies, which is a really fun, like crazy silent film. And then uh woman in the moon, which I've never seen. So I, I, I can't really speak to, but um, I, I believe both of those were silent. I mean, Woman in the Moon was 1929, so I'm guessing that may have had some sort of soundtrack elements to it, um, like uh, Sunrise, if you guys know Sunrise, which is a yeah. silent film, but, but they were able to use sound effects. It, so it, it may have been able to do that, but uh, I'm guessing it wasn't a, uh, full, a full sound film. Um, what what I really like about this movie, and, and it, it is a really interesting time, because like you said, it's probably the first i can't think of any other really like memorable movies of you know this time period of you know kind of like the years between jazz singer and um and m and i'm sure that you know if i look if i did some research i'd find some but um maybe it's a case of filmmakers and studios like just being more interested in kind of figuring out like how to do this like new technology right and sacrificing some of the more traditional elements of storytelling that they mm-hmm. were starting to perfect in the silent era. And M is a movie that feels playful and inventive in the way that it uses the sound, but it's also a fully developed story. And, um, and you know, Lang does that just about better than anybody of the time period, except maybe Hitchcock. So it's yeah. just uh, a melding of this, like, new forward way of doing things technologically and the old, I mean, you could imagine M as a silent movie and still being excellent. Yeah, it would, I mean, it, he wouldn't be able to, he would have definitely had to make it in a yeah, different way. You can't capture the guy because of the whistle. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you can, it wouldn't be as interesting. No, no, <laughs> certainly not. <laughs> um, uh, and yeah, I mean, I love, there are a lot of little jokes that, uh, that he puts in. I think my favorite is, um, right after Hans Becker, um, we see him capture the, the first child in the film that we see him capture, yeah. uh, and kind of really sets things off. Uh, there's, 
there's like a there's like a like basically like a like a newspaper like bulletin posts that you know they would put on sides of buildings or whatever for people to see like you know yeah. be on the lookout for these kinds of you know kind of like a wanted poster but text-based and uh there's like a huge crowd gathered around it and you can't you know you can't make out what it says on you know on the poster so like people in the back of the crowd are like yelling like read it out loud read it out loud <laughs> uh and then so then we hear somebody reading it and then it cuts and you see that the person on the soundtrack that was actually reading it was a police detective, not someone who was in that crowd reading off the poster. So, right. like, you know, those sorts of touches, and there are, like, dozens of them throughout the, the, the movie that um, every time I see uh, see the film, I kind of pick up on one or two more of them that are, that are really cool. And, uh, uh, you know, it does, it really does show that uh, Fritz Lang was really thinking about sound when he was making the film, which... Um, I think when you ever, whenever you have a new technique, typically that's kind of the way to go. Like think about the, the post avatar 3d trend that was going like pretty much every, everyone would agree that the best films that best 3d films that were coming out were ones where the, the filmmakers were actively thinking about how to use 3d instead of just mm-hmm. kind of cheap little things or, you know, the post conversions, um, right, right. I think it kind of worked in, this, in, in a similar way. Sure. Yeah. You, you have a Hugo and a Life of Pi, and I mean, mm-hmm. you can. Cave of Forgotten Dreams. Which sure. one? <laughs> oh, Cave of Forgotten Dreams. Oh my God. Yeah. Some Herzog. Yeah. Yeah. But another you, great German. You can note the director and uh, and guess whether they're going to do that technology right, and that's probably the case. Looking back at uh, this time period too is. Are they a good director that you know who they are and they've made other good movies? Like, okay, they're probably going to do some interesting stuff with the sound. Um, but one of the other uh, big things that you wrote about in your opening piece that you know we have to kind of jump into is uh, Peter Lorre and his performance and just kind of – I'd like to just talk about him generally as an actor. And Sarah, like uh, I'm assuming you have some familiarity with him from Bugs Bunny but other movies too. <laughs> Yeah, no, I uh, I actually took a Hungarian film class where we talked about him oh. quite a bit. Um, <laughs> okay. But I mean, Bugs Bunny came first, so. <laughs> Never forget uh, first. Never forget yeah, your first I... Peter Lorre. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, just like, who is this terrifying small man that's basically just two eyes with legs? <laughs> um, I kind of think of him as like an adult baby. Yeah, right. Yeah, it's like fun. a terrifying adult baby. <laughs> well, any I feel like any adult babies would be pretty terrifying. That's true, yeah. Maybe. I don't know. <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, I, I I, mean, I've seen Casablanca, too. I like him there. I've seen Maltese Falcon. I like him there. But uh, I've never actually, I don't think I've ever actually seen him star in something. So this was interesting. Uh, interesting take as him like kind of a leading man. <laughs> like, like I think he's the he's like he's like clearly like the, the the main character. But there are so many long stretches where we don't even see him or what he's doing, and he has so few lines that's kind of weird. Yeah. Um, but it's not like I'm going to be like, yeah, criminal with the big hat. That's the star. <laughs> right. Right. But anyway. Uh, I'm getting away from it, but uh, yes, I, I really enjoyed getting the chance to see him like this, where he's sort of, he's not like supplementing something. He is showcasing his own skills, like to stand on their own. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think that he's, we think of him as the main character because like, 
there's not a ton of like individuality amongst the uh, people chasing him, and you end up with yeah. uh, like uh, criminal two and criminal three and criminal four, uh, and you know cop three and cop four, and not like oh there's like you know Jan the the police chief and blah blah blah. Like they're not like super well developed as individuals. It's just mob mob and guy so it's like well yeah, guy, exactly. we're gonna know who he is and he's gonna be our main main character even though he didn't say much and and he's not there for stretches he's hiding for chunks of the movie uh and uh and and yeah but i he's really just such a unique uh screen presence i think in movie history and uh i like can you think of a peter lorry parallel to today I mean, based on eyeballs alone, Steve Buscemi. <laughs> <laughs> Other Peter Lorre stuff that I really liked, I'll, I'll give a shout out to the uh, the Man Who Knew Too Much, which is uh, one of my favorite Hitchcock movies, and um, it came out I think in 1934-35, and it was one of his first. I think it was one of his first sound movies. It was definitely his first. Uh, it was, I think, the last movie he made before he went to Hollywood, um, and it's super. And of course, Peter Lorre plays like the main bad guy, and um, he's sort of like a. Uh, they're involved in some international intrigue, and uh, they kidnap a guy's daughter so that he, uh, because he like finds out about their plot to like kill some big ambassador or something like that, and. Um, there's just, it's Hitchcock, so there's, like, lots of, like, really, like, <laughs> sly, funny shit going on, and, um, they remade, he remade that movie in 1956, um, with Jimmy Stewart as the main good guy, um, and I would have loved to see Jimmy Stewart square off against Peter Lorre, but, alas, uh, that was not meant to be, but, um, but yeah, he's really fun, this is the movie that I think I probably always remember him by first, because he looms so large, um, yeah. and I think you end up with the scene at the uh, at the I guess kangaroo court is that what we're calling it? <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I, I feel like that's the the correct term, but it might not I, I trust. Be. I trust you. Yeah, I don't... <laughs> Oh, don't do that. I mean, that's an idea. <laughs> We're, we've been podcasting um, okay. for 11 episodes, so I have to trust you a little bit. Okay. Um, do yeah. you want no, to... Okay, so uh, <laughs> here's what a kangaroo court is, an unofficial court held by a group of people in order to try someone regarded, especially without good evidence, as guilty. So it's it's like half of a kangaroo court. Like, it's, it's definitely an unofficial court, but he's definitely guilty. So it, it, it works. Yeah, sure. That sounds fine. I guess another kangaroo court I'm thinking of in uh, my head uh, would be like The Dark Knight Rises. You've got some kangaroo court business going on um, towards the end of that movie. Uh, But let's talk... Mob justice, too. What's that? Mob justice. Mob justice. Oh, sure. Right, yeah. Um, Yeah, not like mafia mob, but mob like a bunch of people. Yes, Ah. precisely. Oh, it's a double entendre. Yeah. <laughs> um, Aaron, can you like set us up and we can dive into this scene and why it's so important to like the success of the movie? Sure. So, um, well, I, I think uh, just previous to uh, the to this court scene, there there's pretty much a long chase uh, scene where they they catch um, 
the catch Hans. Uh, I almost said Hans Gruber, uh, which is another uh, villainous different character, German. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, so they, the, the part of the, the way that the, the mob in the film, they, they end up catching, uh, Hans Beckert is by employing the, the homeless population who are best suited to be the eyes and ears of the streets. Uh, and that's partially literal and partially figurative since the man who ends up identifying uh, Hans Beckert is blind man uh, who remembers the sound of him whistling uh, in the hall of the mountain King, uh, which is a very distinctive, (laughs) uh, uh, another very distinctive sound that runs throughout, uh, throughout the film. So there's a long chase scene. They, they, they finally catch him. uh, And then there's uh, this, this court, which opens with this just amazing pan shot of I don't know if it's, I mean, it's, it's pretty much from the uh, perspective of, of Becker, just sort of looking over this crowd of citizens. Um, you know, some are obvious criminal, like the criminal mob. Some are just regular, regular old folks uh, who maybe they've lost children to this guy. Maybe they're just concerned citizens, but, but a, a very large group of people. And it's just this silent pan across and you kind of just, and everybody's real still. It just really gives you uh, a good sense of what he and we are up against uh, in this scene. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then they 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 basically they give him just like I, I said earlier. They give him the opportunity to defend himself, uh, to you know give an explanation as to why he's doing this. But it's basically just to laugh at him uh, because they know he's guilty. They know he's crazy. Uh, they don't want to explicitly, they don't want to give him up to the police because they know he'll just, you know, he'll, he'll rot in some, uh, he'll, you know, he'll, he'll go to some mental uh, institution or, you know, he might be able to get off on insanity or something. So right. they, they don't want to turn him over. Um, and, and we get this opportunity to, uh, to hear Hans Beckert for really the first time speak to any sort of motivation I mean, we don't really understand. I mean, it, you can't really understand why he's doing this throughout the entire film outside of just some vague perversion. Uh, so to, to hear, uh, I mean, it, it really gives Peter Laurie a, a time to shine to really get his eyes bugging out and, and, <laughs> and use, use his, uh, use his voice to, to offer a little bit of insight to the character. But it's, it, it's interesting because it, it's sort of enough to, let you you don't like agree with him i don't think if you're like a sane national person but like it it almost approaches on giving you some sympathy for him like like just almost maybe which well, it feels more it's like um like, like uh modern conversations about like child predators like sexual abuse type things where they're like there has to be some way to like reform people right right or like focusing on like not that they're not culpable but talking about how like oh like so many people that like abuse children were uh, like very often victims of sexual abuse themselves for like a long time and so you're just like there's this weird level of sympathy to it instead of just being like it's freddy krueger it's a monster he's gonna get you Right, right. right. And I think you can also just tot- you can read it as just total bullshit, you know? Like him being mm. this this savvy killer who's 
back is against the wall and he's doing everything he can to protect himself. Um, I mean, I think it's a totally reasonable reading of, of his speech at the end, um, too. So, I mean, I think there's a lot of different ways and you can read it. And, uh, and I think Laura's performance of the scene kind of speaks to that as well. Yeah. That's an interesting point. I, I actually hadn't really thought of that. Um, but I think the film just like he does and credit to, to Lang, to Lori, to everybody else who was a part of it, the, of putting the scene together and conceptualizing it. But like they toe the line of allow, like uh, asking you to sympathize or empathize with this character. Um, like they, they go just far enough that like, it doesn't make you feel uncomfortable and that you still don't, but like you can yeah. also like sort of see the world from his point of view. Um, and like, it's, it's tough to wrestle with, to think about that, like that the movie does that and that you understand, but at the same time, I think it's important. And, um, and I think that it probably like more than makes you, uh, feel for Peter Laurie's character. It, it brings down your estimation of these people who capture him. And it makes you think that like, yeah, they're really shitty too. And then, of course, you talked about sort of the authoritarian nature of the cops and and what's looming in German history, and it just kind of like saps your soul a little bit. Of uh, like, is there anybody good out there? <laughs> yeah. So yeah, we have uh, we have on the site this week we have an uh, in in context piece um, from uh, one of our contributors, Pat Brown, uh, who. Uh, I hope you all read because uh, though I haven't, uh, we're recording this early, so I haven't seen what he's going to be submitting yet, but uh, he has a lot of experience with this era of film and he also lives in Germany. So I think he'll have an interesting perspective um, on this. And yeah, he lives in Berlin right now. So yeah, so he'll, he'll really be able to dive in much, much better than I could on uh, sort of how this film precludes the the rise of, of nazism and how uh and, and long's relationship with nazism as well he was uh yeah. he i mean he after this film he escaped germany because uh, the nazis wanted him to pretty much be their filmmaker and he was like there's no way so that that i mean that's really why he came to america to, in hollywood to make films uh and then the writer of this movie his wife at the time uh did become i mean she was a pretty prominent nazi uh, and did do um, work with uh, the uh, Nazi propaganda and things like that. And she also wrote Metropolis. So, uh, you know, because of her perspective, you know, some of that, uh, you know, even though it hadn't happened yet, uh, you can kind of see the tide uh, a little bit through this film. So, uh, yeah, there's, and then this scene definitely puts that in the forefront with, this sort of attitude, you know, these converging attitudes that you see about justice and, and vigilanteism and law and order and yeah, um, mentality and group thing. Yeah, and, Ab- um, absolutely. Uh, yeah, so I'm. Uh, I'll be. Go ahead. Sorry, uh, I just want to jump in on a point um, to say that I'll be looking forward to that as well because that was something that I wish I had more context on when I was watching the movie because. You get to that scene at the end, and they're like, well, obviously, like, we have to do this because the cops, they're like, they're not going to do anything. Like, there's not going to be a satisfying resolution to if this guy even gets caught. Like, you know, they're expecting him to either get off or, like, uh, go to, like, a what they view as, like, a cushy, like, 
Although I can't imagine like mental institutions in the 1930s in Germany being particularly cushy. Yeah. But like in their mind, you know, they, they see it as this like huge failing, but at the same time, and I really hope that I'm not about to say like, like I missed something embarrassingly obvious, but I didn't feel like the cops were painted as like these like terribly inept people or terribly corrupt people. So I'm like, I'm not really sure why a whole mob of people would assume that that would be the case. Like I, cause I was like, I don't know if I'm just missing something about like the context of like how the legal system worked at that time. But I'm just like, it seems like they're like working pretty hard and like getting pretty close to catching him and that they want to put him in jail. So I've, I don't really see the need for this mob. Not that that could have, couldn't have been like, you know, emotions ran high. Like, I'm not saying that that's not crazy or, or that that's not uh, appropriate rather, but yeah. just like the, the contextualizing of it this way of like, it is the, their failure. And I was, I just wasn't sure how I as a viewer was supposed to be interpreting that as like true or uh-huh. I don't know, you know, uh, sorry if that didn't make a lot of sense, but no, it makes no, sense. absolutely. I think I think that's one of the things that Long does really smartly is that right. I mean, we when we see these two parallel investigations, we see that the the cops are pretty much right on. I mean, they they figure out who has done this through you know through actual evidence and through um, through the investigation, but they're also a little bit removed from at least being able to, to find him first um, because mm-hmm. I, you know, because of just the, I think the interesting ways that the, uh, the mob chooses to go through, through with it. And, and I don't know, maybe they have, they have fewer limits or, or something. I don't know. Yeah. I don't, I don't really know how to answer that about the true context of, of why the, the, the mob would think that in this film. I mean, my best guess is just because they kind of see it as personal uh, mm-hmm. That they and 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 you know if I, I would imagine if an organized crime syndicate, you know they're you know through pretty much every film or television show about organized crime, like they try to you know be the be there for the people, you know like they're right. they're there for for their communities. So you know them being able to catch this guy and kill him or do whatever with him. Not only I feel like they feel like that's their duty but they can use that in the community when some you know the parents of of one of the kids who um you know who this guy killed they they will owe a debt to them you know i I imagine there might be some of that in there as well um i think that's sort of taking a lot of outside knowledge that's not really in the film um particularly yeah for sure but i could see that yeah i could see it too um to sort of put a bow on uh, on your comment earlier about um, about Long having to flee Germany because they wanted to use him as the a sort of official Nazi filmmaker. Uh, Goebbels loved this movie, and he said mm-hmm. it was fantastic, free of phony, phony humanitarian sentiments. Yeah, that, I mean that's that's that's. Uh... I don't know how Goebbels would have done as a as a film critic, but I, that's a pretty uh, pretty good reading on the movie, <laughs> even if it's maybe from a, a particular point of view. Um, I, I, one last thing I want to say about the the trial sequence uh, is it it has one of my favorite characters in the whole movie, which is the the guy they charged with being the defense attorney for uh, for Beckert who. 
it's just like you can tell just this like absolutely worn down guy who you know he he wants to take this he wants to do this seriously but he just i mean he obviously sees through <laughs> through what's going on here and and but uh but he puts up a pretty valiant effort and I, and i love his little dig at the uh basically the the head of the mob who's pretty much the prosecuting attorney uh when he points at his own criminal record uh and <laughs> it's a it's a nice little uh, it's a nice little moment uh, and a funny moment in a in a in a film and in, in a scene that isn't particularly all that funny right so do you think that this film doesn't really have a sense of humor i go ahead you you speak on that and and i'll uh, well, I'll I think see that, if I, like, that would think. be the case that I point to. Um, yeah. Uh, at least, like, Exhibit A, if we're going to uh, set this up as a trial. <laughs> um, right. Of, this is, like, uh, a really, really darkly funny movie. I don't think it really is. Like, I, I wouldn't want to be the defense attorney in that case. But <laughs> I think that there's stuff that, like, is... I mean, just the whole idea that, like, a blind man is the one that captures this murderer is... yeah. Like, insane. Yeah. But, like, he makes it work, so uh, it's hard to uh, hard to argue with the end result. And, yeah, I mean, we didn't even talk about, like, the idea that they brand him with, uh, like, the letter M that's written on a guy's hand in chalk and then slapped on his jacket, right? Right. Like, that's a, yeah, like, I mean, which is, like, which is <laughs> you know, where he, I guess, we get the title of the film, because otherwise, I mean... It's sort of a nonsensical uh, title. I mean, what does it mean? But uh, yeah, it, 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 you know, it, it, once you see that scene and see how that plays out, then it's it's like a great. I mean, it's a perfect title. Yeah, it's it's great. It's a scene that, like, when you describe it out of context, you're like, "Well, that's just stupid. Like, that would <laughs> never work. That would never happen." Like, he, and he right. does it in like the clumsiest way imaginable, where like. Uh, <laughs> Uh, Hans is like about to like uh, you know harm uh, a, a little girl, and they they're sort of spying on him. They realize it's him. He's like he has a knife out, and he's like slicing an orange. Slicing and an then orange, yeah. He like drops the peel <laughs> on the ground, and this guy comes over and like slaps him on the back really hard to brand him. And he's like, somebody could fall on that orange and kill themselves. Like, watch what you're doing, man. <laughs> <laughs> I, I appreciated it. I thought he was being sensible. <laughs> it's like one guy on his own by himself, like going after what he assumes to be some kind of criminal mastermind murderer. But I was just like, yeah, buddy, like don't go and don't rush in on your own. Like you're just helping out how you can. You're being smart. Yeah. <laughs> well, the criminal, the criminals are are very good at. Uh, at I guess how to capture a criminal because they've all been caught before, <laughs> right? Yeah, sure. Um, well, and it all—I mean, it just the the idea of how it again, like, sort of with the thinking about the future and, and Nazis and things like that, like the the active branding of a person. Uh, it's you know, there's sort of an interesting parallel there as well, even though. Uh, yeah. Sort of, I guess, reverse parallel because <laughs> right. the person who's being branded is is uh, you know is the bad guy, quote In unquote. This case. Right, yeah. right. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it also sort of reminded me of of a couple of scenes throughout the throughout the film. One when they're still kind of trying to find who this is. Um, all of the the moments where you see 
people watching people on the street and, and seeing how they're, uh, how they're interacting with, with children. Uh, there's a great moment where an old man sort of comes, walks up to a, a young girl. I can't remember exactly what their, their interaction is, but, um, you know, he's, he's helping her with something in this. I think this, she's asking for the time or something like that. Yeah, it's some, and something then he's simple. like, he's like, you need to get home. It's not safe out here. Like, <laughs> and then just this, like the like largest man possible, uh, comes up and is like, dude, old guy, what are you, what the hell are you doing? Get out of here. There's a couple of, of, of that, that. I mean, that scene, the, the way that Lang shoots that to, to sort of show the, the vast difference in these, this little old man and this, this huge guy who's being very menacing toward him. Uh, I guess that that has a, a little bit of a juxtapositional humor uh, to it as well. Um, yeah, sure. Yeah. We didn't really talk too much about sort of like the very, very end of the movie. And I mm-hmm. think one of the things that long, I, I was saying Lang earlier, but I like long now. Thank you for that. Um, <laughs> That he and I lived in Germany for a while too, so I should know better. But um, he uh, he talks about like the, one of the things he likes about the movie is sort of like the lesson at the end, which is that parents you need to like pay more attention to your children. Um, and do you think that like that has any bearing into what's going on in Germany at the time? Like, do you think that that there's like a point to like maybe our generation failed at this? So Mm-hmm. You know, parents like your young kids like make sure they they're raised right that they grow up with a sort of sense of uh, I don't know for lack of a better word morality that is missing yeah. in a certain generation. I mean, from my understanding, I think this was sort of thought of in, in at the time as sort of a social issue movie. Uh-huh. Um, so I imagine that that is that there. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know a lot of the context on that. Maybe uh, hopefully Patrick will maybe illuminate yeah. a little bit on that for us this week. But yeah, I mean, it's... Uh, if he doesn't, we'll have words. <laughs> yeah. Brown, I know everything about Germany. How dare you? Um, it's it's a, I mean, it's definitely a striking last image. Um, you know, seeing these three women who've lost their children and uh, yeah. it's, it's the same, the, the, the centerpiece of, of the three is the same woman that we, we see at the beginning of the movie and who's, who's sort of the, the, the incident that sort of spurs on most of the action because, I mean, we understand that this first time it's implied that he has killed a child isn't his first time he's done it. Right. Um, right. they don't really say how many, uh, I don't think, uh, how many times it's happened. Yeah. I mean, fun. he's. He is a serial killer of, of the yeah. of of yeah of the high of the highest order. So um, almost yeah. if the um, I'm trying. I was I'm trying to think about that scene at the beginning, and again, my lack of context. Again, Pat Brown, why didn't you tell me everything about Germany before I watched this movie? <laughs> um, no, the uh, the beginning, the uh, the little the parents are all terrified. They're all very worried about like the kids coming home from school and being outside and blah blah. blah. They're like, are they you know is something going to happen? Um, we get to see some of that, but that the song the kids are singing is yeah, right. like they, like it's like that eeny meeny miny mo, except it's like a murderer is going to get you and chop you up. And they're clearly like, they have some idea that something's going on, but they're, yeah. you know, they're kids. They don't really see the danger in it. And right. then it, that gets sort of a weird, um, 
level of uh, meaning, I guess, when you think about little kids in early, you know, 1930s Germany not seeing maybe what's coming. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wonder if there could be something to that as well. Like maybe I don't, because I don't know how worried people were starting to get uh, in 31 or 30. <laughs> I don't know enough. But anyway, it was just a thought. I thought it was interesting. Uh, let me, At least uh, there's something interesting about kids not, kids openly discussing the danger and kind of laughing about it and then the parents being the ones that are worried. I think we could probably start wrapping things up, but anything else that we need to take away from M that if somebody's watching it for the first time in a while, they should be thinking about or any other reasons why somebody should maybe give this a shot for the first time if they're not huge fans of 1930s German cinema. Sarah, any opinions there? Um, It's so short. Your, yeah. It, uh, hey, so that's short. a good one. It's yeah, so it totally um, is. No, that, <laughs> I mean, honestly, I feel like that's a pretty good argument if you're really not sure. It's like a 90-minute movie. It's a really, am, it's not much of a commitment to like sit down and spend some time with this where it's, and it's a pretty dynamic story. It's 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 a murderer on the loose, and there's a lot of interesting things there. But what I want to call out, just those my kind of like parting thought was a uh, uh, Fritz Fritz. We're on a first name basis, Fritz and I. Um, <laughs> Fritzy. He uses a lot of static shots that are. I just really thought they were super beautiful. Um, where there might be some dialogue kind of overlaid you know, somebody talking off screen about whatever, um, like the cops discussing the case or our people on the hunt for, um, I want to say Hans Gruber now. This is your fault. (laughs) (laughs) Fritz and Hans uh, Gruber. (laughs) There will just be like, kind of like a few beats, like where just a shot will be on the screen with no one in it, just like an, an empty room or like a broken door or a hole in the floor and like, just like beat 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 and you just spend like a just a moment with each of these like completely still shots and like for some reason it's just like very affecting to me um and i really he does it at least two or three times if not more than that with these little little you know static shots um and i just felt like they were really special and worth you know looking out for paying attention to yeah cool uh aaron any parting words but yeah, I mean, I, I don't know what else. I don't know what else I can say to if you haven't seen M uh, to to convince you other than than everything we've been talking about. I mean, yeah. it's it's one of my favorite movies. I I uh, I, I love the craft. Uh, I love how uh, Long uses both the sound throughout the film uh, and the camera. As uh, Sarah was saying, there are a number of. Uh, really cool, great sequences and shots. Uh, there's an overhead shot um, when they first start chasing uh, Becker, which is pretty famous. It's like a, there's like a, uh, a ton of, of negative space in, in the middle of the frame uh, of the sh- just this big lot, like street, like wide. I can't remember. It's like a wide street or um, just this like big, big concrete space. And then uh, you see this, there's like this sort of little dance happens um, between Beckert and uh, his, uh, his pursuers. It's, it's a, it's a fairly, it's one of the more famous images of the film. Um, Of course, also the, the shot where Beckert sees the M via window reflection as he's kind of looking backwards uh, and is, it's a really nice uh, eyes bugging out moment as well. But yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, it's, it's a film that I love. It's, it's, it's a, a very uh, 
it's it's not really a challenging film, but there's a lot to, that it offers to to really think about, uh, especially in the in the final scenes uh, on uh, kind of what you think about mental illness, what you think about crime and injustice, and and you know law and order. But it's you know it, it doesn't really hammer a lot of that out until until the very end so it it's it's far from like a preachy movie or theme you know too thematic heavy uh you know it's also just kind of a a cool little uh you know process driven investigation film with some memorable characters a great central performance and uh, a lot of really good craft so if you haven't seen it you, you gotta see it it's 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 a good one to see so the last thing that I'll just say, uh, bringing us all the way back around to the top of the conversation, um, Aaron, you mentioned that M was your first ever Criterion um, collection purchase, and uh, it wasn't my first one, but it's one of my favorite uh, Blu-rays that I have, uh, and I have a lot. Um, and uh, I just the uh, the supplements are really really good there's a lot of really cool information about like the restoration and and how chunks of the movie they thought were lost and and uh about the sound and uh i really like if there's a sale coming up and you're on the fence about this movie like check it out like give it a shot like in a in a way that's worthy of the movie um and i think that uh criterion does a really good job at that if you can't see on the big screen of course go do that if the opportunity affords itself but in uh, Allentown, PA, those are uh, few and far between. So <laughs> Criterion Blu-ray is the best I got. Um, mm-hmm. I think that uh, just about wraps things up for our M episode. Thank you for listening. Um, thank you to the Hemingbirds for the use of our theme song, Half a Second. And um, if you want, you can uh, check out all of our M content, including the fabled uh, Pat Brown uh, article. <laughs> Pat Brown! <laughs> Pat Brown! <laughs> If he, for some reason, like... He's never going to listen to this. It's fine. <laughs> uh, so now it's, it's in stone. He, he, better, he better deliver. Um, but he, you know, if you've read anything that he's done on this site, I feel like you, you realize he, he delivers pretty quickly. So. Sure. And <laughs> I'm not worried about it. That's all at thisessential.com. He's all right. <laughs> let's, let's not go crazy here, okay? <laughs> I'm not. I'm, real I'm not jumping star into this. Yeah, sight, we all know it. Well, obviously, I, no one's disputing I... that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> all of this content is at thesinessential.com. You can also um, find us in iTunes. Search for the Sin Essential and uh, subscribe to the podcast, download new episodes, and leave us a review while you're there. It will help other people discover and hopefully enjoy the show. We went a little off the rails. Or leave a review (laughs) of Pat Brown on iTunes, and we'll just read it the next time. We could do that. Just of him as a person. If you're into that and you want to reach out to us, you can do that on Twitter. At the Sin Essential, and if that's something you're into, we will discuss it. <laughs> so, um, so with that, I think it's definitely time to close things out. Uh, for Sarah and Aaron, I'm John. Uh, thank you for listening, and we will talk to you again soon.